please be seated. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Acts 23. Please do have your Bibles there available. Um, It's a dramatic rendering of this episode between Paul and Felix, the Roman governor, and you'll want to have your text open. I won't read every verse to begin with, but I'll read most of them, and I can only finish fit so many on your inserts, so have your electronic copy or your hard copy, pew Bible, whatever it may be, have it open. I'll refer you to the verses as you go as we walk through this passage together. Um, you remember, hopefully, what happened. It's been some weeks since we uh, left off, but the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, a man of principle uh, and fairness, basically saved Paul from being killed by the Jewish mob. Um, The religious leaders wanted to kill Paul upon his return to Jerusalem. He had been gone for years. He had then come back. He made purification at the Council of James, uh, the chief, the head elder, if you will, in Jerusalem. He went to the temple, uh, made purification, did everything he could to uh, be above reproach and not cause any issues because he wanted opportunity to share the gospel of Christ afresh with the Jewish people. But when he got to the temple, there were some people from Ephesus who were his enemies who saw him there and they stirred up um, the authorities against him. He was taken into custody. Uh, They wanted him dead. But Claudius Lysias, upon realizing he was a Roman citizen, protected him. And then he made arrangements to send him with a huge cohort, a huge military cohort, uh, up to Caesarea. In the text it says down, that means the altitude, it was at a lower altitude. So he went north to Caesarea, which is down towards sea level, and he would meet Felix, the governor, who would hear his case. Felix was a powerful uh, governmental official assigned there with much power. And so Claudius sent the Roman citizen Paul to stand before Felix. This would give Paul yet another opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. This is what we see happening in all these providential appointments. Paul meeting powerful leaders with a big audience, people from different parts of society that he wouldn't know normally. God ordains for him to meet them and then bring the gospel of Christ to them with clarity. So I will pick up reading in Acts 23, starting at verse 33, where he comes in, Paul that is, with this huge cohort that Claudius Lysias assembled, and now he is brought to Felix, the governor. Here now as I read God's word, this is Acts 23, starting at verse 33, and then I will read all of chapter 24. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. 
one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, please give us careful attention to your word this morning. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please make the meaning of this passage clear and the application obvious. Sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. I pray this in Christ. Amen. This is quite a story, quite an account. You will notice that Paul keeps meeting people with more and more influence or impact, at least societally. It seems like these last chapters of the book of Acts, it's one person after another where Paul gets to proclaim the message of the gospel. And that person and those people listening get to hear the gospel, and we see a bit of an example for us. Now, as I've said many times, it's not that the book of Acts is some paradigm or model for exactly how we do everything in ministry. It's the story of Jesus Christ sending his spirit to specially empower us people to expand his kingdom, to grow his church. But we can certainly see attributes and actions of the various figures 
like the Apostle Paul, that give us encouragement about how we might pursue similar efforts. In this case, he is given opportunity by God's providential appointment to speak the truth of the gospel. Now, you and I may not all have opportunity to speak to these people with this influence, but all of us here have appointments with people that God ordains, giving us opportunity to give clarity about Christ and who he is. All of us can relate with that. And in that way, Paul gives us a bit of an example about being bold in our witness for Christ, no matter what it costs. And we certainly see that here. Now, to appreciate this episode, we have to know a bit about Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And we know a bit about them from history. Antonius Felix, he was the provincial governor closest to Jerusalem, the Roman governor closest to Jerusalem. He was stationed or lived in Caesarea, which was north near the sea, in a beautiful place and in a beautiful palace. Now, he is the first slave or was the first slave in the Roman Empire to become a governor of a Roman province. Now, it wasn't something he earned. It was something that he happened upon through a family connection. And as governor, he lived and ruled from that place, and he did so with corruption and extreme brutality. That's how he exercised his leadership and influence. He was an immoral person in his own person. He had divorced his second wife to pursue this teenage third wife, who is now at this time 19 after several years of marriage already. She was no better. She had left a husband before him, and she was pursuing all manners of the various pagan practices that were known in Rome. Yet she was of Jewish descent, so would have had some religious background. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that Felix repeatedly crucified leaders of various uprisings with no trial or delay. That's how he handled any uprising. The Roman historian Tacitus described him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king in the spirit of a slave. Hughes describes him as unscrupulous, avaricious, brutal, and a scheming politician. For all we can say about Felix's morality, he was a very powerful civil authority and a political figure that everybody knew, everybody feared and revered. And Paul would have an audience with Felix, a man who was well known in the Roman Empire. And much of what we see in Acts, we see here on full display. God placing Paul in strategic places so that he could testify to the gospel of Christ. I want you to consider the different providential appointments that God has already placed Paul in in our study of Acts. And of course, we see it at the end of chapter 23 again. Earlier in the book, he meets this powerful noblewoman, Lydia of Thyatira. She comes to Christ and becomes an influential first century uh, promoter of the church and its growth. Then he meets a a regular person in the jailer at Philippi. But that's a whole other community that had not yet been reached. And through the jailer in Philippi coming to Christ, many others would hear of the gospel. Another providential appointment with Paul and an individual who didn't know Christ prior. Paul then goes to Athens, that cultural hub of that area of the world, and he speaks at the Areopagus, a cultural address of sorts, with scholars and Stoics and philosophers there to hear him proclaim the name of Christ. Providential appointments for sure. Gallio, the proconsul in Achaia, all places we've been in our trek with Paul. And God gives this appointment so he could profess Christ in front of the person he's professing it to and the audience that they're assembled to hear. 
Many times Paul got to speak to Jewish leaders in the places he went, and then of course the Sanhedrin itself in this latest affair. These religious and cultural leaders with big audiences, and Paul is able to give a clear explanation of Christ. Then of course to Claudius Lysias in this passage, just before the last part of chapter 23, a respected local authority who upheld the Roman law and was used by God to protect Paul. Paul could have easily been killed in any one of these situations, but here again, using Claudius Lysias, an important person, Paul tells the story of Christ once again. But now he would go to the most influential person yet, Felix, the governor in Caesarea. In the verses before, the passage that I read in the last part of chapter 23, we see this massive, massive cohort that is put together to take Paul. Verse 23 of chapter 23, he called two of the centurions, that's Claudius, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. It would have been easier for Claudius just to do away with Paul, but being an honorable person, he upheld his Roman citizenship. Now it's public, the Jews know that he's under Claudius's care. All this is providentially appointed by God, And so Claudius wants to send him to Felix, that's the right thing to do, but he has to gather a huge army or Paul will get killed on his watch. I mean, all of the pieces that have to move for one simple person, Paul, show the providential nature of this, the way God orders it all together. And finally, with a letter in hand, the Roman centurions go and they give the letter to Felix and explains what just happened and how Felix has to decide it. In verse 30 of chapter 23, when it was disclosed to me, that there would be a plot against the man, Lysias now writing, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers follow this instruction, give the letter to Felix, and Felix considers the matter and said, I will give you a hearing, verse 35 of chapter 23, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So here, by God's providence, he's standing before Felix the governor, and the governor is going to give him a real trial. So he's going to wait for the team of accusers to come up from Jerusalem, and then he is going to have Paul give his defense, and Paul will get a real hearing in front of a real court, the court being the governor, with many people looking on. What an appointment that God gives. Now, I've used the word providential over and over again, and I want to be clear about what I mean by that. It's a term that describes the way God orders things together. It's, It's a term that describes the biblical flow of God's hand upon things. In our confession of faith, The writers did a great job at just capturing what the concept means because I keep using it, I want you to know what it means. It says in chapter 5 of our confession, capturing this, this action of God, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. That's the word providence. According to his infallible foreknowledge, in the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. He moves things together for his purposes. That's his providence. That's his watch care. You know, we talk about his sovereignty, and that can seem austere, and that can seem a little bit disconnected, that he's sovereign over everything. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. His providence is the personal touch in guiding and directing things. It falls under the umbrella, you might say, of his sovereignty, but it's very personal and important. His providential appointment of Paul is personal. His providential appointments for you are personal. They're his will for your life that he works out, that he puts you in places and in settings with people 
to have interaction with them of various sorts. Here Paul is put in this place to proclaim Christ. And to a large degree, many of our providential appointments, that's what God would have for us to do, is to have opportunity to proclaim Christ. The last section of that same chapter in the Confession summarizes providence. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Yes, he providentially has his hand of providence on everything, but his people and his church, there's a real personal touch there that we should know about that's exemplified in the way the scripture explains the expansion of his kingdom and the promotion of the gospel. God provides opportunities for us to be witnesses for Christ. And we see these on display in a big way in Paul's life. It's a strategic approach that God uses to spread Christianity here in the first century especially. Ask yourself, what providential appointments do you have in your life? You know, those instances where you find yourself in a situation with certain people that didn't, it didn't make sense to you at the time that you were placed there or you found yourself there, but then it becomes clear that God has you there for a strategic reason. Now, Paul gets to hear the charges against him when that team come up to make their accusations. Look at verse 1 in chapter 24, and we see the charges against Paul. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the Sanhedrin hired a lawyer, essentially, to come and speak for them. And Tertullus is a Roman name, so many scholars think he was Roman. This would be a way to gain favor with Felix by hiring a Roman um, representative who would know the case and then try it before him. So there's Tertullus who's there with the Sanhedrin's leaders, to then lay out the case. Notice the flattery that Tertullus begins with. And in a moment, compared to what Paul says, but Tertullus, um, you can understand uh, the genre of this kind of defense would be, in essence, to butter up the governor, uh, knowing who he is, a man of, of pride, of overwhelming pride, and to butter him up, to soften him up with these words um, would maybe help the case. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Now, this is all a lie. Uh, the Jews hated Felix. We know that by record. Um, he, he consistently prosecuted and persecuted the Jews. He did brutal things against them. They could not stand his rule and his reign. Um, but of course, Tertullus is starting in a way to try to butter him up. In verse 3, just you can just feel and just sense the sap here. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Have you ever heard the Jews talk to the Romans like this? But he's setting it up. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. And a, an abrupt, you could, the, or his oratory skills are noteworthy. Um, from this flowery, wonderful sense to plague, which was a killer, which was something that killed a plague a sickness that kills. We have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So notice that the lawyer, Tertullus, files three charges against Paul. Notice them carefully. He's a troublemaker, an insurrectionist. He stirs up riots. That's one. Two, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He's starting a new order of people that are going to cause problems and strife. They're zealots, the Romans hated more groups 
cropping up to have to subdue. And finally, he's a desecrator of the temple. You might think, why does that matter to the, to the Romans? Well, the Romans had, a, had an agreement with the Jews that if someone desecrated that temple, the Romans would prosecute the case. And it could even lead to execution. So Tertullus wants Felix to know these three charges. He's a troublemaker, a ringleader, and a desecrator of the temple. Back to the text, verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So after Tertullus speaks, then the others who were with him, who hired him, they all say, yes, 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 this is all true. Now, I want you to notice something about the way Tertullus crafts his argument against Christianity, against Paul. And make no mistake, the argument is against the gospel. Um, Paul is the main figure, but they're making this argument against what he's teaching. That's for sure. And we have to see something clearly that's true. It translates throughout the ages. Opposition to Christianity does not play by a set of rules. Opposition to Christianity believes it's right and righteous and will do anything to subdue Christianity, even make up stuff or spin stuff about what we really believe. You hear it all the time. Uh, You'll hear people in the media or you'll hear people who are religious leaders. Sometimes they're the worst. Religious leaders who come off like they'd be friendly to Christianity but actually completely twist what Christianity says and, and make it into an accusation of sorts. You hear it all the time. This is what the opposition to Christianity will do. It'll spin and contort and mold God's word to say something that it doesn't and say something we don't believe. That happens. It happened here. Certainly what they say about Paul isn't what he did. They characterize Paul falsely, and we should expect such a thing. Don't expect allies from unbelievers, especially religious unbelievers. They could be the worst. What's Paul's defense? Well, we see starting in verse 10 how he is able to do. You almost sense he's chomping at the bit to speak like Paul does. And when the governor had nodded to him, it's almost like he's holding him off. He nodded to him. Okay, now you can talk. Paul replied. And notice the difference in the intro. Paul does not lie in his intro. But he's nice. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. Think about that. So, I mean, knowing history, knowing that you've been judge, I cheerfully make my defense. And he launches right in. Not quite uh, the buttering up job that we see from Tertullus. First of all, he says, I'm not a troublemaker. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. I mean, I've hardly even been here and I'm in custody. I've had no time to cause trouble. Verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Remember what he did. He went to James. James told him he needed to go get purified. And he brought an offering you know, that offering he'd been collecting for a couple years. He had no opportunity to dispute with anybody. He was pretty much listening. Then he went up to the temple. He had a friend with him from Ephesus. That was the thing that they pinpointed. But he did everything right, even in bringing the friend. Verse 12, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. So I'm not a troublemaker. Charge one isn't right. And on charge two, I'm not a sectarian rebel rouser. I follow Christ. And by the way, Christ is the the fulfillment of the same faith these guys all say they believe. He's trying to say, I just believe the fulfilled Jewish faith. That's what he's saying. This isn't new what I'm coming up with. Not at all. In fact, we agree on many points. And Christ is the fulfillment. He's the way. He's the one who brings it all to a head and completes it. I'm not sectarian. I'm not starting a new group. I'm not a zealot. Look at verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. 
But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's the euphemism for Christ, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This is a brilliant speech for so many reasons. Um, he connects the thing that they all look forward to, the Jewish people look forward to, of great resurrection to come. Now, the word resurrection right, ne- right there would be a trigger about Christ. The knowledge about Christ's actual resurrection had permeated the whole of that area. People knew it was attested to by hundreds of people. It was a bit of a sore spot because they couldn't disprove it. There was enough belief among the populace that it really happened. Whether they believed on Christ for salvation, maybe not, but people acknowledged that too many people saw that resurrection happen. So by using the term resurrection with their general hope, it's going to draw people's attention to who he's there to represent, Christ, and make them ask the question, did Christ really fulfill Judaism? Because Paul thinks he did, and if it's true, Paul hasn't started a new sect at all. He's just followed the last and great prophet who is Christ, the great priest who is Christ, the great king who is Jesus. So all of this is wonderfully masterful, as we would expect from the apostle as he gives his defense. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's not a pain that Tertullus seemed to take with his flattery in his description of what happened. Finally, he says, and for that third charge, I didn't desecrate the temple. In fact, I practiced great respect with regard to the temple. Verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms, that donation, to my nation who were suffering and to present offerings that had to do with his purification. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. So he'd even done what he was supposed to do. He was purified. He did not desecrate the temple. While they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. Now remember what happened. He was in the temple and some people who followed him from Ephesus, who were part of the opposition against him there, followed him to Jerusalem and they waited for their opportunity. They saw him take Trophimus with him to the temple and that was the bell that went off for them. And they ran back and told the authorities, he's desecrated the temple, he's brought an Ephesian there with him, and then everything unfolds. And Paul looks around there in Caesarea and says, where are those guys from Asia? They're not here. Where are they now? They should be here. That's what it says in the text. Verse 18, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. It's very unusual that the people that turned him in would not come with this cohort to try to bring these charges to bear. Verse 20. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Now he talks to Ananias and the Sanhedrin leaders. Uh, What did I do? I just said the same thing I said here, he's saying. I didn't desecrate anything. Verse 21. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. Another masterful move. Now remember when he says what I read next, he did it the first time to cause a bit of a disagreement between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about resurrection. Here, though, he's drawing it back again to Christ and to what he actually said. He says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. It's about what I teach concerning Christ. And see, that's what's at defense here. It's not Paul defending himself. It's Paul defending the gospel of Christ. That's what the Jews are coming down against. And that's what the Romans are trying to figure out. What's the big deal? In all of this, by God's providential uh, 
appointment is on full display, and we have the record of it and can go over it like we're going over it now. And for this Christian crowd, we're going to gain some encouragement. We're going to gain some perspective on how we might be ready to proclaim the gospel. For someone who's searching these things out, we're going to see one person's response to it here in a moment for them to consider. It's so informative when we see what God did in the first century as he's growing his church. I think first and foremost, though, brothers and sisters, be sure this, especially start a new year, you have all sorts of providential appointments looking at you very soon in your workplace, among the friends you keep, your neighbors, your schoolmates, all sorts of opportunities to meet with people created in the image of God who don't know Christ and need to know Christ for their own eternal salvation. Know the gospel well. You don't have to know everything Paul knew. You don't have to put it together so brilliantly as Paul, but just know how to tell somebody they can be sure they're right with, with God. Every one of us can do this, and we'll have opportunities to share that along the way. I promise it will happen for you this year. Be ready to proclaim and explain the reason you have such hope. I want you to see the final, uh, on the final point, Felix's very familiar response to everything that he's been listening to. He's listening to this, this word from Paul, and he's putting it together. You get the sense that he recognizes there's no punishable offense here, but what does he do? The Jews are really upset. They want Paul prosecuted. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, but Felix, but is uh, adversative, so he's heard the Jews' case, he's heard Paul's case, but he knows something of Christ. So that would lead us to understand he's not buying what the Jews are saying here. And what he does makes us believe that's true. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So he doesn't want to decide for the Jews right away, meaning he doesn't see it, but he's afraid to do something right there in the moment. Then, verse 23, he gave orders to the centurion that Paul, that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. This is a bit of a house arrest, we might think of it. He would live in a quarters that weren't like a prison, um, and people can come and go to visit him. Luke visited him, we know this for sure. He wrote some of the epistles from this place. For two years, he's kept in this house arrest, because Felix won't decide his case finally. He doesn't want to upset the Jews. And all the while, Felix is hoping that Paul's going to pay him off. And so that's Felix's motivation as he delays, as he procrastinates, as he puts off what Paul is proclaiming. And that's the tragedy that we see in the way he responds. And it's a response you see all the time. Some people just oppose Christianity and say, that's not right, that's not true. Others will say, that's interesting. Tell me more. And they'll want to talk and discuss, but they never actually rest in Christ. Now, I fully understand that we can't make somebody rest in Christ. But I would just say to you, if you're in that boat, in that seat, where you are impressed with what you hear about Christ, but you have not laid hold of him, by God's Holy Spirit, may he, the Spirit, open your eyes to see you must rest in him. Do not procrastinate. You don't have tomorrow for sure. You don't have the next second for sure. We all can think of examples, even in our own church, where we're here one day and we're gone tomorrow. We're somewhere with the Lord or separated from the Lord. That is the fact of our existence and what happens to us. And so here you have Felix putting it off. Let's continue to see what he does. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. So there's Paul under house arrest. He gets his wife, who is Jewish. 
we already heard the story of how they came together. And I'm sure some of the, some of the guilt they're living with, it could just be guilt because of the way people looked at them. I'm not saying it's an internal guilt that made them repent. But there is a definite stigma about them that they were aware of. And they were wondering what Paul would say. So he came with his wife, who was Jewish, verse 24, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul preached. We know because we have the body of what he preached in the other uh, epistles he wrote and in the book of Acts. He preached faith in Christ, faith in Christ. Now, interestingly, Paul does something else in his interaction with them. He customizes it for who he's talking to because they're interested. Verse 25. This is Paul again. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, I want you to, to look at that. Those are the three points of his sermon. He talked to them about righteousness, the righteousness of God, no doubt. Think of what he wrote in Romans about the righteousness of God. Luther hated the righteousness of God before he became a believer because it condemned him. So Paul speaks of, in the context of faith in Christ, because that's what his main message is, he talks about the righteousness of God to two people who were in terrible sin. Then he talks about something else, self-control. Another problem for both of these individuals that they would know of. And finally, coming judgment. You can't escape this. You're in sin. The only way you can escape this is by faith in Christ. You can, you can see the message, but it's a hard message. The gospel message is a hard message up front because it confronts with sin and nobody wants that confrontation. Yet, and let alone a man who could kill Paul on the spot for saying this kind of thing. It's, it's a bold witness that Paul has when he's given the opportunity by providential appointment. And what is the response? Verse 25, Felix was alarmed. It says in some versions he was terrified. He was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. When I get an opportunity, people don't say that. I'm saying people because I'm talking to you if you don't know Christ. You don't know that you'll have another opportunity. You just won't. You just don't know. Later when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, today is the day of salvation. If you hear God's voice, respond. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He never did have another opportunity or he didn't make another opportunity because Festus comes to replace him and Paul will stand before Festus next and Felix is out of the picture. You know, of all things we can say about this episode with Felix and Paul, uh, certainly I take it to heart as a minister of the word. Uh, It's a reminder to ministers of the word that our mission is to proclaim the word, not appease people at any level. That's not the, the role of the pastor or the elder of the church. They are to speak God's word no matter what the fallout is, no matter what man reacts concerning it. Our mission is to proclaim the word of God, not appease people. And our assignment is to confront unbelief in the world, and that sometimes means confronting powerful people with an uncomfortable message. Kent Hughes cites the example of Hugh Latimer, which is a great example. When Hugh Latimer preached in the 16th century to Henry VIII, remember Henry VIII? He was that immoral king of England who basically um, executed several of his wives. And basically, he didn't reform the church to reform it for theological reasons. He didn't want the Roman church to tell him he couldn't divorce his wife. And so that's why he separated. And so he was a pompous, arrogant person, a lot like Felix. And there's Hugh Latimer, a minister in the Church of England at that time, preaching the word of God. And he preached a sermon one time, Henry VIII was there, and it offended Henry VIII. He spoke about adultery. 
And so Henry VIII felt focused upon and he was upset about it, really upset about it. And some of Latimer's closest friends were worried for Latimer's life. And then one of the king's advisors came to Latimer and demanded him to preach again the next Sunday and essentially to apologize for what he had said that offended the king. So the next Sunday, after Latimer read the text like I would read it, he made a statement and the statement was like he was talking to himself. Listen to what he said. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are speaking this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, do you not know why you have come and whose message you have been sent to give? Even the great and mighty God who is all present and who sees all your ways and is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver God's message faithfully. Latimer then went on to preach the exact same sermon he preached the week before to King Henry VIII. As you might guess, Latimer only lived a few more years before Queen Mary had him executed. But even at the stake while he was burning with Nicholas Ridley, and Ridley was crying out because the flames touched him first, he said, be the man, Mr. Ridley, for this day we're going to light a flame so big all of Europe's going to see it. I'm not saying you got to do that. But I am saying that God will give you providential appointments and they can be uncomfortable, but we're called to speak that truth, the truth of Christ, boldly and clearly. And if you have interest in the claims of Christ, respond, come to Christ. Finally, here we are, 2020. We'll have a a yearly verse I'll give you, but it's not in this particular passage. So in January, I will give it to you. It's coming up. In 2020, let this be a year of our acknowledgement of God's providential appointments for us. You know, there are growing cultural pressures against biblical Christianity that can be depressing and discouraging at times. But in such times, as history has shown, there is a great opportunity to stand more clearly for the gospel. Our task as a church in a day like this is to be sure of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, make sure we're focused on that being what we're defending and to be ready at all costs to defend it. Maybe you saw this week, Chinese pastor Wang Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison. The Chinese news report stated this, on December 30th, 2019, the Intermediate People's Court of Shenzhou, Sichuan province publicly pronounced the following judgment in accordance with the law regarding the case of defendant Wang Yi for the crimes of inciting to subvert state power and illegal business operations, the church. For the crimes of inciting to subvert state power and illegal business operations, Wang Yi is is sentenced to nine years in prison. He is deprived of political rights for three years and 50,000 RMB, which is a Chinese currency, that's a fine, of his personal property shall be ceased. Pastor Yi released this statement as he entered custody. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, It is merely a lie and temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. 
I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to, to, attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and my children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. God will place us in strategic settings so that we can testify to the gospel of Christ. May he give us the strength to do what we need to do when those moments come. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin a new year, give us a keen awareness of the settings that you place us in. Give us courage, um, give us boldness, give us clarity of mind, give us opportunity. Please guide us to these situations and people so that we can testify to Christ. Pour out your sustaining grace so that we may make Jesus known, deepen our love for Christ and all that he has done for us, and all that cannot be taken away from us because of Jesus. Thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who gives us the understanding and ability that we need to obey you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.